Welcome to Health Cetera's podcast. For years, U.S. healthcare facilities have instated ethics mechanisms to counsel providers, patients, families, and others as they grapple with the moral considerations of various medical scenarios. These mechanisms often exist as ethics consultations and ethics committees. Ethics consultations provide spaces in which people within hospital settings may consider the ethical considerations of decisions during times of medical crisis. With the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade intensifying the moral considerations of medical abortions, ethics consultants and committees are expected to receive consultation requests from both patients and providers as they adjust to the change in legislation. On this podcast, registered nurse Diana Mason hosts Dr. Virginia L. Bartlett, Assistant Director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Sciences at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, for a discussion about the services ethical mechanisms provide, the various moral considerations that may require consultation, and how the recent change in abortion legislation has affected ethical decision-making in clinical settings. This podcast first aired on Health Cetera in the Catskills on WIOX Radio on August 10th, 2022. Well, today on Health Center in the Catskills, we're going to talk about ethics committees in healthcare and cons- ethics consultations. Many hospitals and healthcare organizations have long had ethics committees or consultations to consider clinical issues and cases that are ethically difficult and complicated, but they're increasingly in demand. The overturning of Roe versus Wade has resulted in a chaotic legal and ethical landscape in some states. Women's lives are at risk if they live in certain states that have criminalized abortion, particularly if they have an ectopic pregnancy or experience fetal demise or have an incomplete miscarriage. In some cases, clinicians are seeking ethical consultations to guide them in the best course of action for both the woman and the clinician who could be prosecuted if their actions are deemed by the state to be providing an abortion that is illegal. So Dr. Virginia Bartlett is a registered nurse and bioethicist who is assistant director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics and assistant professor in biomedical sciences at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And Virginia, thank you so much for coming on to Health Center in the Catskills today. Thank you for having me, Diana. I'm glad to to join you. One slight correction, um, I am not actually a nurse. I have two nurse sisters and a stepmother who's a nurse, um, uh, but I am actually trained with a PhD in religion and uh, a philosopher ah, practice. Well, so, I've just made you an honorary nurse, and given that you have a mother okay. and it two is sisters, a, yes. It is a great honor to be uh, to be so called. <laughs> good, good. I, I have a different set of knowledge than, uh, than, than the nurses do, and uh, I learn from them every single day. So. Well, great. Thank, thank yeah. you for clarifying that. So, so let's talk about what, what an ethics committee is and what their purpose is. Sure. Um, so it is, as you said, a great question because not everybody knows that ethics consultations are available in hospitals and other healthcare settings. 
for example, some extended care facilities, nursing homes have them, some rehabilitation centers, for example. And, and as, as you'll notice, I shifted, um, as you did, to ethics consultation because although hospitals have been required to have an ethics mechanism available to clinicians and patients and families since the early 1990s, those mechanisms vary by structure and operation depending on the facility, on location, on size and resources. So not every hospital has a committee, um, but most will likely have some kind of ethics consultation service. So at the broadest level, no matter what the structure, ethics consultation is really aiming to promote and enable morally appropriate, effective decision-making by the people primarily involved in patient care. I think people forget sometimes how challenging it is to be ill or injured. Mm or how challenging it is to care for someone who is ill or injured, whether it's a family member or friend or as a healthcare provider. Um, we take it for granted uh, that we kind of think about it as business as usual, that we know how to do this. But there are moments when one person's every day is disrupted or rubbed mm -hmm. up against someone else's or some new kind of curveball situation. And those are the moments that prompt ethics consult requests. Now, can a patient request an ethics consult? Yes, in most hospitals, um, patients can request an ethics consultation. If you're looking for access, sometimes, hopefully most places, they will have some kind of information on the website, perhaps on the, um, the posted documents about patient rights and responsibilities. If not, um, if you can't find it, ask a nurse, mm -hmm. ask a social worker, um, ask a case manager, ask a chaplain. Because if there is a service, if there is a consult service that's available and active, people who work there will know about it, and they'll be able to connect patients and families to the ethics consultation service. And let me just clarify, because you indicated a, a, just a, a little bit ago that there is a requirement that some healthcare organizations be able to have some kind of an ethics consultation. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, it's it's one of the um, requirements under the Joint Commission. Um, that accredits so hospitals? Any, mm -hmm. that, that accredits hospitals. So any hospital or healthcare uh, provider that, that basically takes care of patients who receive, um, who, who are cared for with Medicare or Medicaid, uh, they are required to have some kind of ethics mechanism. And again, it varies. So a smaller hospital or a skilled nursing facility may have a multidisciplinary volunteer committee, right, that's doctors, nurses, social workers who meet um, monthly, perhaps, to review older cases and, and complex situations. They might be available on call for consultation services. Um, a lot of places operate with kind of a small group, again, usually multidisciplinary, um, that are more uh, rapidly available. My institution is very uh, fortunate to have, we have three full-time clinical ethics consultants that mm. we are all trained as consultants. We don't, that is our primary role. Um, so whenever there is an, uh, when anybody calls with a concern that they feel is a moral concern or an ethical question, that's the only warrant they have to have. They don't need permission from anybody else. They just have to have a question that feels to them like it's an, uh, like a moral question or ethics question. And then it's our job to help um, we respond and we try to figure out what's next. What information do they need? Where do they go next? Um, 
maybe it's actually a, a legal question and we send them over to risk management. Maybe it's a religious question and we connect them with chaplains. Maybe it is a question around identifying values or resolving conflicts. And that's where we can be and try to be of service. So let me turn, uh, clarify, the, when you are called in to mm-hmm. do a consultation, it is not prescriptive, it is advisory. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Um, you know, we didn't, I didn't go to medical school on purpose. Um, <laughs> but the, the, decisions, the decisions around um, providing interventions or accepting interventions, those are physician responsibilities. Uh, nurse responsibilities for providing patient and fa- patient and family responsibilities for accepting them. Um, so we don't tell people how to practice medicine or how to practice their nursing responsibilities. Or we don't tell people this is what you should do to take care of your mom or your brother. Mm-hmm. What we try to do is make the space for people to actually talk about what are the things at stake, at risk, um, at issue here trying to get people to, to figure out what are, the, what are the values at hand, what are the actual real-life um, consequences. Going back further, what are the facts of the case, of the situation? What's actually available for this person in the bed? What is their body doing? Um, and, and everybody's different in terms of what they're willing to accept in terms of outcomes. Um, and in terms of intervention burden. So what are their goals and values? Can we actually achieve them? And so those kind of things are, are things that we don't tend to typically talk about um, until they come up in conflict or until they get challenged by the situation. So our job is to make space for people to talk about those things and to sort through what, what really is um, possible when there are conflicts or dilemmas, helping people work through them, not necessarily to end in consensus or agreement, um, but at some point in healthcare, people have to make choices and take action, and everyone, patients, families, and clinicians are going to have to work through the aftermath of those, and so it helps if there has been space and time for people to think through together. How many consultations do you get requests for a day? Now, this is Cedars-Sinai. Give us a sense of how large Cedars-Sinai is. Sure. So Cedars-Sinai is um, nearly 1,000 beds uh, in our hospital. We're a very large uh, tertiary medical center. Um, We see patients from all across the socioeconomic spectrum, all across um, the, the health spectrum, meaning we see traumas and accidents and injuries, as well as people with, um, with long-standing or chronic illnesses and acute illnesses. Uh, we devel- deliver a lot of babies <laughs> at the hospital. <laughs> so um, it, it's a big hospital. Um, we see, we have increased our number um, over the years and exponentially over the past probably two years, it, not directly because of COVID, but, but as part mm. of that, I think, um, or loosely related, we had almost 400 consultations last year, um, mm-hmm. and so any given month, it's you know somewhere between 25 and 35. Mm-hmm. We have 
we've had months where we've gone over 40 consultations a month, mm-hmm. which is more than one a day. Yeah. And the consultations, we follow the patients until they um, are discharged uh, or until they die. Uh, because the whatever the circumstances that prompt the initial consultation request, that may not be the final concern or the final question. Mm-hmm. Um, and other issues do crop up. And so we, we remain available to the clinicians, to the patients and families um, throughout the patient's uh, stay in the hospital. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about a couple examples. Let's give listeners a sense of, of what, what you might be dealing with. Okay. Um, so especially given current, um, current events, mm-hmm. one circumstance that we had, uh, we had a pregnant woman who was, early in the pregnancy, 14 weeks or so, um, and kind of like the case you were discussing in Ireland, um, her waters broke, and she lost a significant amount of amniotic fluid, so much so that there was zero chance of the pregnancy continuing of the fetus surviving to viability. And after after her waters broke, the increasing risk of infection, risk of death, um, you know, grew hourly and daily. Um, so the team recommended uh, an immediate D&D, dilation and evacuation, which would terminate the pregnancy that was no longer viable. The reason we got a, a request for an ethics consultation was because the, the woman understood in some regard that the, that the pregnancy was no longer viable, but she hesitated for the D&E just in case because it was a wanted pregnancy mm. and because it was a surrogate pregnancy. Uh-huh. So she didn't want to proceed without the agreement of the couple for whom she was carrying the pregnancy. And so the team called for ethics consultation, not to make any kind of decision, but to help with the kind of, of moral distress and the, the weight of responsibility that these clinicians were feeling that comes from taking care of people in in difficult or and, and even tragic circumstances. We know what the physiologic thing to do is that makes sense for this woman's body, that makes sense for her, but there are others involved. And what do we do now? Mm. So that was a particularly challenging one. And so, so wait, so wait a minute. So when you did that consultation, Mm-hmm. What do you? What did you do first? What What do you? What right. do you go do? <laughs> right. Sure. Great question. And and I will give you the standard ethics answer, which is it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like every facility has um, a different structure in terms of how their consultation service is is staffed or arranged, um, there's going to be ver- variety in practices in different institutions. But in general, you can expect the consultation service to engage in a couple key activities. So, for example, we spend time talking to the people who are involved, to the people who called, what are your concerns, to the, um, looking through the chart, trying to get, again, a, a sense of the clinical facts and the pieces and the, the, the parts of this situation, um, talking with social work, talking with the, with the pregnant woman, trying to, to make space and arranging for conversation with um with the pregnant woman and with the 
with the couple who were uh-huh. the surrogates, um, who, you know, they had questions and concerns too. And so it's, there's always a, there's always a, a kind of clinical urgency um, mm-hmm. for circumstances like this when people are in distress, when things are uncertain and are uncomfortable. Um, and, and there's a kind of push towards, we have to do something, we have to do something now. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we do is we slow down. Mm. We take a pause. We make the space for people to actually think about the things that uh, they're worried about, that they're uncertain about, so that if there are answers, we can find answers with people. And if there are um, conflicts, we actually can get those up on the table. And in this circumstance, it was just, again, a series of conversations and facilitating conversations with the clinical team, the patient, um, the people who basically were her community, um, the people for whom she was acting as a surrogate. And so that set of conversations didn't make a decision for anybody, but it helps people who were having to make decisions and take action in crises do what they needed to do and to understand where the other folks were coming from, understand what the kind of moral framework that they were carrying um, we're bringing to the situation. So then you would return to the unit until the woman hopefully was discharged, hopefully <laughs> hopefully had the yeah. DNA and was yeah. discharged. Yeah, and so we, we for, you know, every consultation is different, and so that's, that was that part of the hesitance around me saying, here's our exact process, because yeah. they're all different. There yeah. are some that, that just need that set of conversations and making space. There are some that need... Uh, a more formal research process and, uh, and consultants and this, that, and the other. Um, sometimes once the, the question is, is resolved, as it were, that's all anybody needs from us. Other times we would go back and follow up and check in with the patient or, um, or with the nursing staff or with the – we do a lot of teaching. Um, I think a lot of – in any um, hospital where there's ethics folks and where there's trainees, whether they're nurses or physician trainees, we do a lot of teaching on the, in these kind of encounters. And so following up with um, the, the clinicians to see how they are feeling, how they are thinking about it, if they have remaining questions. So it's always funny to think about when is the consultation over? Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are ones that for me, I still carry with me in mm-hmm. my, um, in my heart and in my head, and it's, they may have been from years ago. So, but they also still, just as every nurse learns from one patient how to approach and take care of the next, and every doctor learns in the same way. I think that at its best, clinical ethics can also be an ongoing practice and learning, and um, help us figure out how how humans take care of other humans. Yeah. Uh, let me remind listeners, you're listening to Health Center in the Catskills. I'm Diana Mason, the host of the program, and I'm talking with Dr. Virginia Bartlett, who I made an RN today, but she's not. We're, we've made her an honorary <laughs> RN. She's a bioethicist who's assistant director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics and assistant professor of biomedical sciences at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, and we're talking about ethics committees. So th- th- I wanted to talk about this because um, uh, in the news we're seeing stories about women who, um, you know, are miscarrying or they have a tubal or the fetal demise, and they are in states where abortion has been banned, including to say uh, in cases of, of um, rape and incest. 
and uh, it's, in some cases, it's and, and with the threat that anybody who does that does an abortion or contributes to an abortion could be prosecuted for murder. So, okay. so the ethics committees are grappling. Uh, clinicians, I think, are going to ethics committees and saying, "All right, this woman will die if mm-hmm. we don't do this." However, mm-hmm. we feel like we need to wait until she really shows signs that she's going downhill. Which, right. as a nurse and healthcare person, you never want something to get worse if you can step in and correct it now. Absolutely. So, yeah. so talk with us about how, as a committee, mm-hmm. uh, uh, how a committee might balance the ethical issues here within this very chaotic legal system. Right. That's that's a great question. I think one that people are are um, struggling with both in the real and also in the imaginative. I think there's also a lot of kind of preliminary anxiety around what are we going to do if and when we face these. Um, and and in some ways, it's actually um, <laughs> like all like many of the ethics uh, questions. It's simple and complex. Um, right. So. Uh, it's really, in some ways, not much different than any other ethics consultation. And what I mean by is this. Um, because very few ethics consult services or committees are decisional, they'll face the same um, challenge they always do, which is, a, which is a different challenge. It's how do you support the clinicians and the pregnant women who will have to make these decisions around abortion? And so in some ways that means as simple as, keeping up to date with what the laws actually say in their domain, in their jurisdiction, while there is such um, chaos and while everything is in flux. I can foresee a lot of conversations back and forth with hospital uh, lawyers um, and and counsel just to be clear about what the laws say. And, of course, one of the problems is that a lot of these laws are not terribly clear on the medical end um, in terms of the specificity the total bans are much clearer, but the ones that that make um, uh, make restrictions around gestational age or around um, risk and harm to the life of the mother of the pregnant woman, um, those are those are as they have always been clinical judgments and medical facts. So it, the ethics committees or the ethics consultation service part of the role is to make space for and remind clinicians and take time for people to get clear on what those medical facts are. Does this fit within any of the exceptions granted within these state laws? Um, If this or if this is a situation involving rape or incest, um, where those exceptions are in place. If there are no exceptions in place in the institution or in the state, um, they might be trying to help the clinicians and the pregnant person transfer or travel, not that the ethics Mm. committees will set that up or do that, but that may be the, if it's actually not an emergency and not an option here, that it can't be done. Mm. Um, So it becomes trying to figure out when options are limited, what are the actual options available? Um, And given how much confusion and mixed messages there are in the general public um, it's no wonder that both patients and the healthcare providers are uncertain and anxious. So this is one of the places that, again, I think ethics committees, not that they would be deciding, yes, this woman is at risk of dying, but they can provide the 
space and the institutional support for clinicians who are making those kinds of determinations that, yes, we're going to proceed with the termination for her. In the few moments that we have left, I'd like you to talk to people about when when they might want to say, I'd like an ethics consultation. If they are a family member of somebody mm-hmm. in a hospital or a long-term care facility, or if mm-hmm. they are a patient themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And, um, you know, our, our consultation service is designed, and we both educate and advertise to to clinicians, and it's available on our website for folks, that we don't want there to be any barriers or people feeling like, well, I have to come up with the, the giant conflict or it has to be a, a particular kind of ethics question. I would tell folks, if you have something that is making you uncomfortable, nervous, you're feeling uncertain, you have a sense of conflict, um, those are moments and spaces to call for a consultation. So, again, we think about those in terms of if, if something feels to you like an ethical or moral concern, that something's not right, then Ms. Ms. Clavel turns out the light, right? It's the old Madeline um, story. If you have something that feels like it's not right, raise it as a question. Mm-hmm. Part of the work of ethics consultation is helping people identify and speak out and share those concerns. Again, we're not practiced in our daily lives thinking about what matters most to us, thinking about how we want to approach our health care. We only get to those in crisis. And so part of um, the ethics consultation service is helping people figure out what are the concerns and what are the next steps to, um, to respond to those. So communication, conflict, just feeling like you're not getting information that you need, those are, those are all spaces that we can assist with. And and as you've alluded to, our healthcare system is fraught with ethical issues every day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We have staffing shortages. Who gets what kind of care when? To me, these are all yeah. ethical issues. And, yeah, and so um, I'm expecting that in the crisis that we're experiencing in healthcare, you're going to get real busy. Uh, and uh, and I, yeah. I want to encourage people to, whatever hospital you use, be proactive and ask the hospital, mm-hmm. do you have an ethics committee? Uh, look mm-hmm. on their website, see what information is available. Um, and, uh, yeah, just to know about it. And I, one concern, Virginia, may be mm-hmm. that for, for people – People may, you know, when you're in a hospital and you're a patient or you're a family member, you're vulnerable. You are not the powerful person in the room. It's that clinician who's the powerful person in the room. What about fear of retaliation? That if I'm a patient or a family member and I call an ethics consult because I'm unsure of, of, uh, I'm feeling conflicted and disagree with the clinician's decision and I feel like they're not hearing me. Um, What about retaliation? that is hopefully not an issue in most places. Again, with places that have a lively and a, a vibrant ethics consultation service, um, most people, clinicians across the board, if, if there's one person who's having concerns or feeling that something isn't right or um, that, that communication is going sideways, chances are they are not the only one. And so um, oftentimes the ethics consultant, again, being called in by whomever calls it in, can make space for people to, to, to connect with each other around those concerns. 
Um, if you're worried about a direct consultation, again, talking with social work or chaplain, um, they might be able to, to pass along the message for concern. Um, most hospitals have a, a pretty strong non-retaliation policy uh, around anything Great. having to do with practice or patient care. So it's a lot for people to, to kind of get their minds around if they aren't used to it. Um, but I think one of the key things to remember is people, however difficult the situation feels, the people involved are trying to take care of someone who's ill or injured. And they may have radically different ideas about how to do that yes. uh, within and among families and communities, within and among clinical teams or professional mm -hmm. disciplines. But most everyone is there to care. Yeah. Um, and so holding on to that, um, that as yeah. the kind of base can hopefully give people courage to ask the questions they need. Well, Dr. Virginia Bartlett, bioethicist and, and assistant director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics and assistant professor in biomedical sciences at Senior sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. They're fortunate to have you, and we were fortunate to have you on Health Center and the Catskills today. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Diana. This was a great conversation. Great. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast of Health Center and the Catskills. For more podcasts and discussions of important health issues and policies affecting health, go to Health Cetera's website and blog at www.healthmediapolicy.com. That's www.healthmediapolicy.com. This podcast was produced by Dr. Diana Mason and production assistant Kai Volsey.